Julie, there's a situation in which somebody has back pain and they go and Google and they'll text their doctor friend and be like, hey, my back hurts. And I thought I just threw it out. But then I went to the web search and it now says I have a kidney stone. So like, help. Sometimes I get my kidney hurts. <laughs> and I'll be like, <laughs> point to your kidney. Where do you think that is? Yeah. Sometimes they're right. Let's play this game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good job. Actually, we should get that looked at. <laughs> <laughs> now my kidney hurts. Yeah. So, but the classic web search comes up and it'll be like, yeah, you may have strained your back or whatever, all the common things. But then all of a sudden it'll be like kidney stone. And you're like, I didn't know I had stones in my kidney. What, what do I do now? And so I... Do you treat kidney stones on a frequent basis? I certainly don't. No. And if I think that that's what it is, then I'm quickly <laughs> sending them to a specialist. Somebody else's problem. Yes. 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 <laughs> totally. Yes. I just remember something about lasers. So just fire lasers <laughs> at it, right? Like, I think that's where medicine is, fire lasers at things. So what I want to do is bring on somebody to help us understand what in God's name is a kidney stone and why does it show up when people are like, my back hurts? Should we do that? I think we should. Let's do it. Yay. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. I'm going to bring on one of my best friends, Ryan Steinberg, he's a urologist at University of Iowa. And I've known Ryan since I was like two years old. So at that point, I don't think we were talking kidney stones, although I cannot be fully sure that we weren't. So Ryan went to University of Illinois and then eventually ended up at Rush Medical College where you and I went, Julie, but at the same time as me. And we actually roomed for the first two years. And so all of the really like shitty, awful parts of medical school, like basically the parts where you're not actually seeing patients, you're just reading textbooks. And what I said was basically doing four years of college in two years. (laughs) That was the part that we were together. And I felt like we were just constantly like in sweatpants and drinking coffee. That was like our sustainability and then ordering late night food. So we finished medical school. Ryan went off and did his uh, residency at University of Iowa and then went and did a fellowship in endourology and minimally invasive surgery down at University of Texas Southwestern at Dallas. And then long circle back all the way back to University of Iowa where he treats primarily kidney stones. So he's the perfect guy to bring on to talk to us about what the health is a kidney stone. Why does it show up in my Google search? And frankly, just to hopefully not give away my entire life's history in this entire podcast. No. So, or give it away, I guess, in that case. Boo to the last part. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. Longtime listener, first time caller. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait a second. <laughs> Jeremy, did you bring on the perennial sunning guy? You recognize the voice, don't you? Oh, yay! This is gonna be everybody check your taints. Good one. Oh, you know, always happy to to talk stones whenever I have the opportunity. And I want you to know, uh, especially for Julie, that uh, Jim and Kathy—that's Jeremy's parents—they still thank me to this day for getting Jeremy through the first two years of med school. So uh, you're welcome, Jim and Kathy. Yes, that's true. That's true. So, Ryan, ask the answer the basic question, man. What what is a kidney stone? Oh, well, it's it's exactly what you think it is. It, it's literally a stone 
Kidney stones, the vast majority of them are made out of some form of calcium. And the best way that I try to explain to people how to think about that is leaving a glass of salt water in the sun. When you don't have, when you have too much calcium, sodium, other, you know, nerdy stuff that us chemistry folks really like to think about and not enough liquid to dissolve it in, it crystallizes and forms a stone. And how many people have kidney stones? Like, is it a common phenomenon and do they always cause people to have pain? Yeah. So a uh, great question. So rate of people forming stones has been rapidly on the rise. One of the early estimates from like the seventies or the eighties suggests about five to 6% of the population will have one in their lifetime. The most recent estimate from about a year or two ago puts that now about one in nine people. So up to about 11% of the population will have a stone Shit. at some point. A lot of that's pointed to the obesity epidemic really happening over the last 30 years or so. You know, we eat less healthy things. We're not drinking enough water and we're all, you know, generally getting fatter. Hopefully we're exercising at least a little bit, but all those things are probably definitely contributing. So yeah, stones are extremely, extremely common. Do you always know when you have a stone? Could like one of the three of us be sitting on a stone right now that just isn't causing any issues? Absolutely. So you have these times where you don't drink enough water, you're out in the sun, you're doing work in your yard, whatever it is. And you basically create this environment where your kidney, as it's doing its filtration of the blood like it's supposed to be, just becomes too saturated with all of these different molecules. And so small crystals can form. Crystals in the urine actually are extremely common. You do a urine test on a random person without kidney stones, there's a good chance they're going to have some level of crystals in there. So we think that there's something also related to the flow through the kidney, potentially something intrinsic that slows down that flow, allows those crystals to kind of stick together and ultimately form a stone. But if a stone is not trying to actually pass out of your kidney, but it's just up there growing, it won't necessarily cause any symptoms or anything of that nature. And the most common way, in fact, many times that we find them, you know, or somebody gets a CAT scan for random vague abdominal pain in the seat in the emergency room and then the next thing you know hey the er doctor told me that i had kidney stones and i need to come oh yeah i randomly had back pain for the last 10 years and and then you're playing a little bit of a game are the stones really the cause of the pain or is it just other back pain but they definitely don't always have to cause pain i think it's funny that a kidney stone and like gallstones and just like the concept of like I'm sorry, there's rocks growing in my body, but it's just the concept. And I, I know you spell it out there, you know, that's literally just crystallization and deposits of different minerals that just decide to coalesce together. So if somebody were to come in and had a stone, and so certainly you're probably going to do a history to try to figure out some of these risk factors that you talked about, what are some of the like dietary things that are common that people shouldn't be doing or do less of? A lot of it really comes down to diet. We know that family history is a risk factor for stone disease, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a strong genetic component because at the end of the day, the person who teaches you to eat is your mom and your dad, right? And so we know that mm -hmm. uh, dietary patterns, the amount that people choose to eat, their hydration status are things in many ways that as children we learn and we carry over into adulthood. The most common thing for sure by far that we see is a relative dehydration. We often suggest and recommend to patients that they achieve an urine output of two and a half liters of urine per day, which means you probably have to consume maybe roughly at least three liters of total fluids per day. That's very hard for most of my patients to achieve. And so a lot of times, you know, I tell them to do that the best that they can without basically drowning themselves or making themselves sick, trying to 
force fluids. Now that's total fluids. We know that there's a lot of fluids that actually can be beneficial and studies have suggested are actually protective against kidney stones like coffee and tea and a certain amount, like a moderate amount of alcohol, which I know probably brings a lot of joy to Jeremy's heart is also a good reason. Well, yeah, you've heard it here first. Coffee, tea, and alcohol are the things that Dr. Steinberg is recommending to prevent (laughs) these kidney stones. In moderate amounts. In moderate (laughs) amounts, they confer benefit in multiple ways. So I just feel like we have these avid listeners now that are all rushing off to Amazon to get their urine collection tube so that they can make sure that they're getting their proper output. And so instead of, you know, just keep that collection of urine to make sure you're getting those two liters every day and throw that puppy in the dishwasher and get it ready for the next day. It does help though, to have like an actual water bottle that is that you know how much is in there, right? So like in all seriousness, like having some sort of water bottle that's either marked or you know it's 20 ounces or whatever, and then being able to keep track certainly is beneficial. I know it benefits me for sure. So you've hit on hydration a bunch of times. It seems like the number one thing that people should be doing if you want to either prevent a kidney stone, or if you've had one and you're not going to want to get it again is stay hydrated. Make sure you're drinking enough fluids. Yeah, absolutely. And and just underscore what you were saying. So I often recommend that patients get a water bottle with mark, you know, like markings on the side saying, you know, 10 a.m., 12 p.m., 2 p.m., that they should be hitting these certain things. There's actually a national study going on right now across multiple centers, about 1,500, I think, people that they're recruiting who they're giving smart water, known stone formers, they're giving them smart water bottles and then following Hmm. them to see whether the use of smart water bottles, basically reminders on your phone, the water bottle lights up or beeps and gives you a reminder that you need to drink more and whether that can actually can confer improved hydration and uh, get people to have less stone. So that's actually an ongoing study right now. I don't think I knew that there were smart water bottles, but I guess it also, like at the same time, I'm not sitting here like shocked and falling off my chair. I'm like, of course there's a smart water bottle. Is there something that actually brings it to my mouth and like makes me drink it too? That's... It's one of those beer helmets. I just yeah. tell people yeah. just to throw the smart water bottle in the beer helmet. And... Yeah, so. and in moderation, it can actually be a beer every once in a while is what you just told sure. me. So that's good. That's good. Physician approved. Physician approved. I want one that sends you like really snarky or like rude text messages like, yeah. drink water, bitch. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I think it depends on what city you're at. I mean, if you're from major metropolitan center it might just be something that's like hey drink a goddamn water now <laughs> if you're from iowa like me it might just be something like you know i think it's time to get off your combine and drink a little bit of water so you know you never you never know it's so polite so the general dietary recommendations beyond you know just drinking a lot of water so we recommend that people have a low sodium diet which is you know advised for hypertension and all of that but has also been shown the lower the sodium, the more you can reduce the amount of calcium in your urine. A low, we call purine load or low meat diet, that does not mean you're going vegetarian or vegan, you don't have to. The idea is just to monitor how much meat you're taking in because that confers a large acid load and also comes with a lot of things in it that can cause stones. Now, red meat in that, red meat is actually the biggest offender. The second biggest offender is actually fish, which a lot of people don't realize. So the best thing for you is turkey and chicken. That doesn't mean that you should only be eating white meat. It just means that in the relative amounts that you eat, you want to be doing more of that than you are of, say, fish and, and red meat. So other things that you can do that are really important. So those two, a normal, this this actually shocks people all the time. They say, I had a kidney stone and it was made out of calcium, so I cut all the dairy out of my diet. And that is a huge, huge, huge issue because actually you need calcium. It's very important. And we have good studies to show that 
a low, so not having enough calcium in your diet actually confers just as much of a risk of potentially having another stone as having too much calcium. So you need to have a normal amount of calcium that's 1200 mil equivalents uh, or milligrams of elemental calcium, which everyone looks at me cross-eyed and says, oh my God, I don't even know what the hell that means. <laughs> and I say, guess what? Me neither. Yeah. Is that on my water bottle? Does my small <laughs> water bottle tell me that too? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm lucky and I have some really awesome dietitian friends who have put together some handouts that actually I have posted on a website that I give to patients with a lot of stone diet recommendations and tells them, you know, here are the high, low, medium type of foods. And here's a bunch of example combinations as to how you can achieve a normal amount of calcium. And then the last thing we talk about is oxalate. So that's all the stuff that's in really yummy foods. So a lot of green leafy vegetables. So kale, uh, excuse me, not kale, uh, spinach, rhubarb, coffee, tea, chocolate, nuts. It's not that you need a low necessarily oxalate diet. You just don't want to overdo those things. I had one person come in once and tell me that they were told from a young age that if they ate an entire jar of peanut butter once a week, that they, it would keep their kidney stones away. And she was like, I just can't figure out why it is that I keep getting kidney stones. I was like, I think you need to cut back the peanut butter just as coach. <laughs> and, and guess what? She hasn't any more kidney stones. So we're doing great. You're a miracle worker, man. Yeah. So anyway, so these are general recommendations for stone disease. Well, you know, Jeremy, you were talking about how sometimes they can cause pain and that can get mixed up with different other types of back or flank or, you know, that kind of pain. Ryan, I've never had a kidney stone myself. I have friends that have had them and folks have told me it's some of the worst pain that they've ever experienced. Can you kind of like talk through, I don't know if you've ever had one personally, but what patients complain of or what they, how they describe it when they're experiencing one and one that is like in the, you know, it's in transit. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't have the video feed, I just saw Jeremy take the biggest swig of water I've ever seen in my entire life. So he's clearly heeding the advice, which is good. Yeah. Now I'm self-conscious. <laughs> I also have the urine collection cup going. So gross, dude. I'll give updates. It's good. That one's off screen. <laughs> so the most common thing that people will have when they come in with a kidney stone is pain. Usually that pain is what we call flank pain. So that would be located on the back. And most typically it'll be on one side or the other. And it'll be located, if you feel your back, it'll be right underneath kind of where the ribs are, uh, where your 12th rib would be. The pain can be variable. I have some people who say that they have, you know, they know they've, they've had stones forever. They feel it's a stone, but it's not terrible. Majority of them have pretty severe pain. And a lot of them will have nausea and throwing up, which is actually secondary to the pain. And then uh, many people can have fevers, uh, blood in their urine, visible blood that they can see or even other signs potentially of like a urinary tract infection, like going frequently or urgently. And that tends to be as the stone's kind of approaching the bladder and irritating the bladder. So that's the way that they most commonly show up. I tell my wife all the time that I do believe strongly that women uh, have a far higher pain tolerance and are the tougher of the sexes. And the number of people, women who come and tell me, yeah, that made, you know, my three, you know, childbirths look like no big deal. I mean, that's a real phenomenon and definitely something that I hear for sure. So you have this spectrum of pain, right? So I would imagine that also leads to a spectrum of presentation. What I mean by that is you probably have some patients who are just coming to the office and telling you, listen, I think I have a stone. But then you also probably have the person who you just mentioned, or if I was that person, I'm going to the emergency room because <laughs> I'm literally dying. Does that change the management of it too? Sure. Most of the pain happens as a result of a stone trying to actually pass out of the kidney and down to the bladder. And it causes basically a relative blockage of urine trying to get out of that kidney. 
And so when the urine backs up and causes basically pressure back on the kidney, you know, you're feeling that stretch, you're feeling that almost, you know, feels like an inflated balloon, you know, on the inside, uh, which can be conferred as pretty severe and sharp pain. But some people have stones that just bounce around in their kidney. So they may have instead of constant pain, uh, pain that kind of comes and goes and they feel it for, you know, an hour and then it goes away and then they feel it. And that's classic, what's called a renal colic or, you know, just like babies are colicky. You feel it, renal meaning kidney, you know, you feel that pain kind of on and off over the kidney. And so, you know, if somebody comes in with renal colic, you know, that's definitely more manageable. We would try to get some imaging to see whether there's a stone present, where it would be, uh, and then can triage from there. But, you know, if people are having nausea and throwing up and dehydrated, you know, those are the people that are probably coming through the ER that if I received a phone call, I would route that way because you never really know, you know, I worry about people dehydrating, worry about them having electrolyte abnormalities and things related to that. And, you know, I think that's just a better place to be able to kind of very quickly get their pain under control, give them the appropriate medications and hopefully put them into a better state to be able to, you know, confidently send them home where they're not going to immediately come right back. How often do you concomitantly see people having some type of like infection with it? I mean, you mentioned fevers. Do you feel like do fevers happen just because of the whole like inflammatory process of passing the stone? Or do you see that only if like they have some type of bacterial urinary infection as well? Like how do you, do those coexist? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I will tell you that we don't often see fevers, like in the grand scheme of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of stones that happen every year, fevers and and all of that uh, happen in a very small percentage. And that always kind of strikes fear into the heart of the urologist because you're always concerned about infection and sepsis. Basically, you have infected urine that's trapped in the kidney that can't get out. And so that puts them at a very high risk for sepsis. And so we would, at that point, in some way, attempt to drain or bypass that urine around the stone with either a stent, so a small silicone tube that goes on the inside to allow the urine to kind of travel down into the bladder, or a tube directly through the back that would drain the urine from that kidney out like to a bag. That ends up being actually a life-saving endeavor in, in these cases. So fever always, even if we don't think you know, everything else seems to check out would still kind of prompt us to want to get, you know, establish good drainage, put one of these tubes of some sort in just to rule it out, not ever roll the dice with the fact that it's not because inf- infection until proven otherwise. Yeah. Is CT scan still the go to like they come in and you're going to try to figure out if it is like CT scan is usually what you guys are doing? Yeah. So there are definitely multiple different imaging modalities that you can use. CT scan is by far the most common And a lot of that is just every ER has a CT scanner. So it's very easy to get that done. Uh, And it's the best way. So the likelihood of finding it and the likelihood that it's accurate is 99%. And the good news, though, is that they've worked out some new, you know, over the years, new low dose protocols. And so the newest kind of iteration of these low or ultra low dose protocols ends up being that even though it's a CT scan, it's the same radiation as getting, say, like two plain x-rays of your abdomen. So, I mean, that you can really, really get uh, accurate um, images for what you need without having to, you know, turn Mrs. Jones day glow orange from, you know, all the radiation exposure. So. so when you get that back and you've made the diagnosis of a stone, right, this is kind of a two-part question. How do you make the decision on this person can pass this stone versus we need to do something else? And the second part of the question is how frequent is like what percentage of people do pass the stone? Like how much intervention has to happen? Yeah, so very good questions. I'll start with the second question. 
So the vast majority of people who have a stone will pass it. I think the last the last data I saw on this is almost 10 years old now, but at least based on claims data, uh, about 70% of people will, you know, have, be diagnosed with a stone, but will never actually need a procedure or a surgery for it. So, you know, the vast majority will pass them on their own. In terms of how do we predict who is and isn't going to pass one on their own, there's kind of three, three different things, at least that we think of. So the size of the stone is definitely important. And as they get larger, they're less likely to pass spontaneously. The location of the stone, at least at the time of the CT scan, is it still way up by the kidney or is it almost all the way down in the bladder? Also kind of gives you an idea of whether it's going to pass. And there have been multiple nomograms and, you know, you know, fancy statistical analysis on being able to predict, oh, based on this one, you have a 73% chance of passing this or a 12% chance. But really what ends up kind of being the most predominant factors in terms of all these different ones that are out there are those two factors, the size and the location. You know, the other thing for me about whether a patient needs some sort of surgery or intervention is just because you say, hey, you're 73% chance that you're going to pass this. All the studies that have looked at that suggest that we give people six weeks to pass their stone. That's a long time if people are in terrible and excruciating pain. It's not being managed. You know, people have to go to work and they need to make a living. And, you know, so uh, there are times definitely that we intervene, even though they're likely to pass it, where they're just not able to tolerate that spontaneous trial. And at that point, we talk about going in and getting the stone out actively. Yeah, it's a really good example of studies are helpful and they're important and they give us evidence, but they we don't live in a vacuum and we don't live in the studies. The person you're seeing is not in the study. So there's lots of factors that go into that. So as we do episodes and we talk about different things with studies, I love that aspect of that for sure. That's a great point. Yeah, we lose the human element, unfortunately, sometimes. It's easy to point at the data and look at the data, but you know when the person is staring at you in the ER and you know they've been awake for you know, they waited in the ER for 10 hours to be seen. I don't know what your ER is like these days, but it's pretty crazy over here. And then it's another six before their urology is called and they've been awake for, you know, 20 straight hours. You know, it doesn't matter what the studies say and they're still in pain. You got to do something for them. Yeah. Fuck your 73%. <laughs> Not interested. So, yeah. So now, Ryan, if you have somebody say, you know, say I'm in the ER and they call you and they're like, Julie's complaining too much can you come deal with her and you find that i have a stone that has a pretty low likelihood based on its size and its location to pass you know naturally what kind of things could you offer me i would probably go out to the parking lot find a very big stick and bring it in <laughs> and just tell you to bite on it and we'll get to you eventually <laughs> Rub some dirt on it. Um, no. What sort of medicine do you guys practice in Iowa? Yeah. It's, it's pretty corny, the stuff that we do here. But... <laughs> oh, no. That's good. I can tell he's used that one before. <laughs> you know, a couple hundred times. Uh, so what would we offer you? You know, typically the decision about how to go in and get a stone out or what to do, you know, is really the best decided based upon, you know, a conversation with your doctor. Because there's, you know, lots of different potential interventions that we can do. And some of them have a higher likelihood of being stone completely stone free afterwards but may have you know carry a higher risk in terms of you know potential complications or side effects from surgery and things like that and so the majority of the stuff that we do is minimally invasive or non-invasive if you will and so you know thankfully those are day surgeries people come in they get their stones broken up with uh yes i will i'll do the air quotes for you julie 
lasers. Yes, the lasers. We made it. And then sometimes we break them up with sound waves and there's some interesting new technology coming out of the University of Washington looking at you know new ways to utilize a technology that we've had since the 80s. So, you know, lots of thankfully lots of different options in terms of what we can offer. And if you're at that low likelihood, we're probably having a serious conversation about which one's going to be best for you and getting you scheduled to have that done. The most important question that I personally would want answered is, do I get to keep it? So that's a good question. Uh, (laughs) I always tell patients if I take them out, they're more than welcome to keep it, assuming that a, you know, the recommendations from our national society is that at least one time in a patient's lifetime or stone disease that you send it for an analysis. So you do know what it's made out of. There are some people who come in with infectious issues. So I often will send those patients to take a chunk of the stone and send it actually for a culture, see if anything will grow. Outside of that, you know, I never know who's got grandchildren and wants to make like a really awkward friendship bracelet for them or <laughs> like a momentous necklace. So, I mean, if they want them, they can have them. But oh, my God, I just have this vision of like, yeah, it's grandma's kidney stones. <laughs> I mean, earrings out of it, aren't they beautiful? I think that's great. I feel like it's always so taboo that you don't get any of the stuff that people take out of you. Like, I don't think I got to get keep my wisdom teeth or anything. I want these are my things. You took them out of me. I, they belong to me. You know, after some of these procedures, we'll leave one of those stents, one of those temporary mm-hmm. tubes like we talked about, and patients either take them out at home or they'll come to the office. And I always tell them when I take them out, I'm like, do you want to keep your stent? Most of them look at me like, oh, God, I don't want that thing. You know, so it's always <laughs> interesting how they don't want that. Sometimes they want their stones, you know. I mean, they paid for it. So, I mean, right. if they want it, they can have it. Yeah. We don't reuse them. <laughs> No, this is this is not one you can put through the dishwasher and shove back yeah, in. Right. So. For anyone listening, including myself, I don't know what it means to use a laser in a human body. Can you just briefly describe what that means? I mean, you've seen Star Wars, right? Yes. Yeah, it's like that. That's what I was envisioning. I mean, literally the kidney stone itself, the way Julie's describing it, it sounds like an asteroid and we're chunking it off and sending it. So yes, I have this very much out of this world image of it, yes. Yeah, so most stone, especially calcium stone, tends to be relatively hard. So the laser fibers that we most often use are 200 microns in diameter. So that is two tenths of a millimeter across. So they're very, very delicate. And basically the the energy from the laser comes from the machine, travels down, comes out the end. And there are different theories on which is best. And, and usually it ends up being right if you have people on different ends of the spectrum, usually somewhere in the middle is the best. And you literally go and you touch the stones and your goal is either you break the stones into such fine dust that it's almost like emulsified in their urine. And so the idea is that their body and as they drink water and stuff after surgery, they will naturally just flush that out. It's not passing stones, not passing chunks. It's getting rid of this dust. And then other times we'll actually physically use that to basically break or fracture, crack the stone into small pieces. And then we'll actually use a small basket or something like that in order to remove, actively remove or pull those pieces out of the body. So do you feel like Bruce Willis and Armageddon a little bit? Daily. I felt that way five times today. Oh, so yeah, every time they finish, they have that Aerosmith song come on. I don't want to miss a thing. <laughs> it's just after every every stone breakage. Yeah, it's, play- like a, it's like a it's like a Blackhawks goal every time. <laughs> is that what you play in the OR, Ryan? Or whatever. I'm assuming you do this in an operating room, right? I We definitely do this in the operating room. Nobody wants to be awake for most of this stuff. Oh, no. So, uh, yes, there's not a lot of Aerosmith in my OR. I typically like to keep the number of beats per minute on the uh, actual music uh, higher than the patient's heart rate. 
So even when they get tachycardic, we got to turn up the, the BPMs <laughs> a little higher. So we're getting a little preview into the rapid fire already. But Ryan is really into electronic music and house music. And so that's what he would study to. And like, that's probably what's going on in this operating room as he is using a laser to break up something into dust. It's like sits in a holster. Just, you know, so but this is where the endourology comes from. You're doing this through the urethra up into the kidney, right? This is all happening inside. These tools are very small. Right. So that laser fiber is really tiny and we can pass it through a scope. So just like you get a colonoscopy, we have small flexible scopes that will actually travel all the way up. And they're long enough. They travel all the way up into the kidney from basically backwards in this direction that urine comes out. We put the camera scope. So up into the bladder, up the ureter tube, all the way to the kidney to break the stones and and they're, they're flexible, they're small. The scopes themselves are two, I think I told you the laser fiber is about uh, 200 microns, so two tenths of a millimeter. The scopes themselves are only two millimeters across, so they're pretty small. And then even when we do what we consider to be a maximally invasive surgery for kidneys, you know, we're, we're not doing open or laparoscopic or robotic procedures for stone disease anymore. We're putting a one centimeter hole in somebody's back, and we actually put a scope in through their back directly into the kidney with a special device that'll grind up the stone and suck out the pieces. That's so cool. It's so cool. It is. It's so cool. <laughs> like, it's just the, it's like so much cooler than the, everything. It's so cool, <laughs> right, man. Than our jobs. Robots and lasers. Uh, you know, yeah. Come to urology where the good technology flows. So. I love it. Wow. I love it. Dude, I should have known that when we, we scheduled this episode that you can't spend more than a minute with Ryan without a pun coming out. He's just full of puns which you guys can tell you've been here 35 minutes and I think there's been a pun a minute, so we're good. <laughs> Got to keep it cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard any like weird fad kind of things or different supplements or off the, you know, not FDA approved stuff that people have been recommended to prevent future stones or deal with their stones? Yeah. Like what's the weird stuff? So all the time, we do know that some of them confer a stone risk. So people who are vegan or vegetarian who may have uh, alternate sources of, you know, non-dairy based cheeses and things like that, like almond or, or cashew cheeses, you know, if you have large amounts of that, that's going to confer a large oxalate load. People who like to substitute and have large amounts of soy, soy is actually processed in the body and becomes oxalate through some pathways. And so even people that abide by those diets, you know, we always assume, oh, no meat and no, you know, processed or carbohydrates or this. But really, at the end of the day, what we find is moderation of everything and balance is kind of the key component. You also asked, sorry, about herbals. I'm trying to just make sure I touch base on all these different points here, that there is a lot of malarkey. That's probably the best way that I can describe it out there on the internet, and in particular with herbal supplements. There's a lot of things that are promoted as being pro the ability to either dissolve stones or prevent stones. And the short answer is the vast majority of them, you know, various things that are sold online or, or on Amazon or whatnot like that, you know, stone stop. They have a lot of the things that we often give people alkali that helps to prevent stones, but they may not have actual research to actually prove that they do anything. There is one herbal supplement that has been studied. Jeremy, I don't know why you're, I just feel like you're going to really enjoy this. It's called Shanka Piedra. Oh, it's my favorite. Yeah. Literally translates into stone breaker. 
And that one has been studied and does show and suggest that it does have some anti-stone forming properties. I can't tell you that it means that it's applicable to everybody. So I'm not telling everybody listening to this podcast that they should immediately go out and start taking handfuls of it. But I don't think we know enough or fully understand it. And the limited number of studies do suggest that it it works. I don't think we fully understand how it works, though. Is it a pill? Like it's a supplement pill type thing? Yeah. Okay. Are there any of those products that you actually think is are fine for people that like when they go and pick it up and you're like, actually, that's pretty good. Yeah. So this is the thing that's always tough is that so you have a kidney stone. Okay. And let's say you don't know what your kidney stone is made out of. If you take certain things like the most common thing and the thing that's in all of these supplements are usually we call alkali. So things like potassium citrate and magnesium oxide and things like that, that help to make your urine more. Not only do those things directly bind to certain things and stop stone formation, they also can affect the pH of your urine. And if you ultimately push your pH too high as a result of that, you may form one type of stone and then you may convert and form a different type of stone. So the first thing you you typically want to do is be really careful about just self-starting these medications. And that's why often I do recommend doing, uh, you were joking earlier about your pee collection chamber or bottle. When I want to know what it is that somebody needs to prevent stones, I literally, it's a company called Litholink. They are, they just got bought by LabCorp. They're located outside of Chicago. They do all this through the mail. They send a box that has a collection jar in it and people urinate and collect their urine for 24 hours in that jar. And they actually mail a sample of it back to Litholink, who based on that smaller sample extrapolates it out for what their whole day's worth of stuff was and can tell us how much urine they made, how much calcium is in their urine, how much sodium is in their urine. And then based on that, that's how I make my recommendations. So if it turns out you do need citrate and that's what's either low or that's what's abnormal, there are some supplements out there that are really good that have a lot of these alkali. So there's something called Litholite. There's something called Moonstone. Those are over-the-counter products. Some of them come as powders that you mix with water. Some of them, I think the Moonstone comes in like, uh, I forgot if they're gummy bears or gummies that you can take, you know, and these are ultimately just ways of trying to confer basically the same as what most people would get through a prescription medication called potassium citrate. The problem is that about half people who take that have really bad GI distress. So these are just different formulations or ways to kind of confer that same alkali load, all that same kind of medication, but in a way that people you know, won't upset their GI system as much. Can you imagine if you were like a porch pirate and you were stealing someone's stuff off of their porch and it ends up being just like a big jug of piss? Just how <laughs> how poetic that justice is, that it's just a bunch of stone-filled piss instead of some wonderful package that you were hoping to. Julie, bless your mind for like the comment you make is about stealing things off people's porches. I live like, in Chicago. That, 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 that. Do they do that in <laughs> Iowa, Ryan? Doesn't, are there porch pirates in Iowa? We do occasionally have a front porch that is plundered, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And we also haven't talked about the poor soul who filled up that urine thing, who comes out and finds it gone. And is like, I have to do that again? (laughs) Pissing this jug all day. Son of a bitch. Oh, man. I'll tell you something. You want to see a very pissed off patient. It's the one who like basically took their entire Saturday to hang out at home. They couldn't go to Target, meander around and buy some shit for their kids or, you know, go to Walmart and get their photos developed or do that because they got to sit there and every drop of urine's got to go in that in that mm. jug. And then they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, we lost it in the mail. Oh, and they're like, yeah. fuck this. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> Yahoo doctor. Oh, my God. They're making me mail my urine. I'm going to get like an FBI agent at my door, you know, for domestic terrorism or something. Would you like to insure this package? Yes, yes. I'd like to. Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> 
<laughs> if it makes you feel any better because all this is run through insurance, Litholink does send you a pre-stamped, pre-packaged like box to send it back in. So thankfully it's... Makes the mail carrier probably feel better in two. It's very kind for them. I just sent it in a Ziploc. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it used to be that you just piss in a coffee filter. Do we not do that anymore, Ryan? To like find the stone? Yeah, to like collect your stones. Like if you were just going to send the stones off and it was somebody like, say I'm in the ER and they're, and you come and see me, you're like, you know what, Julie, you're probably going to pass these things. They're small enough. Here's some pain meds. You know, if you haven't, you know, piss in this coffee, you don't tell people to piss in a coffee filter anymore. I'm too afraid that coffee filter will end up in a Mr. Coffee somewhere. So I try to refrain from that. <laughs> it's not reusable. We do magically, I know this is probably a crazy thought. We do have little tiny strainers that we can give people in the ER that they can, they like fold up and you can put them in your pocket after you pee through it. I'm not really sure you want to fold it up and put it in your pocket, but we do have those. If you insist, I would probably go for the undyed coffee filters because they're just more organic and natural, <laughs> you know, but you know, I'm sure that that would be a totally reasonable thing if that's how you would personally prefer to go about it, Julie. Well, I'm just saying, I just feel like it's a pretty easy, it's like a hint from Heloise. It's like, when you don't have your urology strainer, just piss in a coffee filter and then collect those stones and send them right over to your urologist. I feel like this is one of those life hacks that we really didn't need to put online, right? but glad you've shared with you. I mean, that's going to be the reel for the episode, so I'm glad, I'm glad that you teased it for that. Okay. I feel like, are we missing anything on stones, Ryan? Like, is there something that if somebody's listening here and we've inundated them with both our terrible humor, but also like hopefully good information, is there anything we're missing? I think the only thing that I would add is that, so if you think you're having a stone, but you're not in horrible, excruciating pain, make an appointment, go see somebody. If you're in terrible pain and you think you have a stone, go to the ER. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of preventative therapy. And so prophylaxis, anything we can do, all the stuff we've been talking about, about medical, you know, dietary changes and medical therapy and urine testing, you know, those are not just for the, you know, person who's had 17 stones in their life. You know, interested first-time stone formers can absolutely have this testing done. And if you're interested, if you're somebody who's, you know, seen a family doctor and you, you've passed three stones in your life and you're, maybe you're not having trouble now, but you're like, I don't know if I have stones or I don't want to have trouble. I'm have this trip coming up to Europe. I take done surgery for people who have travel plans or weddings or things coming up and they don't want something causing them trouble. You know, be proactive with your health. Go see somebody, go see a urologist, have this testing done or talk to them about these things and how you can be more uh, proactive about prevention. You're here. Yeah, that's great. I also think that you just named a really good Facebook group called the First Time Stone Formers. The interested first time uh, stone formers. Stone Curious. Yeah, the Stone Curious. Great band. Great band. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. We do something called the World Famous Rapid Fire at the end. It's meant to be non-theoretically medically related, although sometimes it weaves its way back in because that's the only shit that we do all day. So we that's what we think is funny too. But we want to just ask questions about you and get to know you a little bit. So I know a lot about you. So I'm gonna let Julie go first. Well, now I'm interested to know what is in your OR playlist. So uh, the more invasive through the back surgery mm -hmm. that I do uh, tends to be Wolfgang Gartner radio on uh, Spotify or some smattering of EDM. Nice. The other stuff I'll switch between kind of a indie rock playlist Maybe some, I don't know, Daft Punk, Arcade Fire. Switch it up. Depends on what the mood is that day. And I, I try not to dull everyone else's senses. Uh, <laughs> and so sometimes we'll crowdsource as to what else it is potentially we could listen to. Yeah, if you have like younger learners in the OR and you want to seem cool, do you ever like young it up a little bit and like play some new? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, just holding it up. It's all... 
It's Steely Dan all day. Yeah. <laughs> if they put on today's hits and there's like two songs in a row that I don't recognize, I'll be like, all right, what is this? I was like, we need to switch this up right now. <laughs> I uh, I have rapidly bypassed the in any vein being cool because I'm 100% not. And if you don't believe me, ask my five-year-old. That's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> yeah. there you go. <laughs> so yeah, no, I definitely not, uh, not definitely not trying to be the hip one in the OR, that's for sure. As you wield lasers, though, yeah. you're wielding lasers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pseudo cool. Uh, casual cool, casual cool. Yeah, yeah, cool, 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 cool. All right, Ryan, you knew you were coming on the show. You knew you wanted to enlighten people of your and my relationship. So enlighten people with one story of us that you think would be fun to tell. Jeremy and I tended into what I will call the dark arts, which was we played a lot of PlayStation and we specifically played a lot of hockey. Oh, we did. I do remember that. We played a lot of NHL, NHL hockey as the Chicago Blackhawks. Is he a shit talker? Was he like telling you mean things about your mom and stuff? Yes. <laughs> Yes, he was. Uh, I don't think I was allowed to do that. At all. Ryan's mom used to always bring this Oreo ice cream pie that she'd drop off like all the time. And it was so good. It was so Aww. good. It was nice having those things dropped off. So he had to keep it nice. Otherwise, she wasn't bringing it. He wasn't bringing the snacks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we did play video games. I was just telling this to a patient the other day. I tried to play a video game sometime in the last six months. I can't remember when it was. But like I was like, I'm going to I had like some free time and I, I still have a video game system. I was like, I'm going to try to play a video game. And I put it in and I got 10 minutes in and I was like, I was so bored. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't do it. And I was, it was like a combination of depression because I like, I used to love video games, but also like, well, I guess I've hit this part of my life. I think I'm too dumb or I don't have any patience. <laughs> my problem's like, ugh, this isn't surging my dopamine fast enough. I don't care anymore. No. Yeah. The patience part was a huge part. I was like, I don't have the patience to do this. I don't have to play video games anymore because I put cameras in people stare at a screen <laughs> oh, yeah. and blast them with lasers. That's true, he plays with lasers every day. I play video games every day. That's awesome. yeah. He's literally playing video games every day. Right? do you want to give us a call to action this week, Julie? Yes, I would love if everybody checked out our merch store. Jeremy and I are both wearing our new design that says, <laughs> it's, de it's designed by our friend, friend of the friends, uh, Dave Heidloff, and it says, advice from the last generation of doctors that inhaled lead. <laughs> picture of like an old <laughs> 70s car on it and that is a dave heidloff original he's amazing tm so yeah we've started to put out merch um that's going to continue to increase so yeah check out our merch we'll put the link in the in the in the show notes ryan if people want to learn more about you where can they find you you can search me on google ryan steinberg at university of iowa there should be a, a link to my webpage, and that'll also have a link to a webpage called well prepped which will be a lot of information and resources that you can find about stones and stone disease and some other things that I see. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, I had a lot of fun. Julie, did you have a lot of fun? I sure did. Ryan, did you have a lot of fun? How could I not? Yeah. I mean, I learned that I can have a, an occasional old-fashioned and I'll have one less kidney stone, so I'm, I'm happy about that. <laughs> Sometimes there's rocks in your body. It's not that big of a deal. Ask your doctor friends. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. 
This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.